Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. When I'm not producing books and DVDs and everything else on, on how to train horses, I'm thinking about horse welfare, and I'm thinking about the welfare of this planet. And the two are tied together because horse people, we, have, we, own, a, we own a lot of land. And the more we learn about how to care for that land, the more we can contribute in a positive way to the climate change crisis. As we take care of our land, what we're discovering is that we're sequestering carbon in the soil. And that's really what, in part, I want to explore is how do we go about doing that? How can we be even more effective in the use of our land so that we are maintaining good grazing pastures for our horses, our horses are healthy, our pastures are healthy, and collectively we make a difference for the planet. So one of the people that I found to talk to, who I thought would be of interest and who had some interesting history and insights in the the way in which land is managed, is Sam Bingham. Sam is a journalist, and he spent, in the 70s, he spent about 10 years living in New Mexico with the Navajo. And while he was there, he met Ellen Savory. Alan Savory is a he's a fascinating character. He is from Africa and originally he fit all of the stereotypes you would have of the European landowner from Zimbabwe and Rhodesia and you know sort of picture the uh, the stereotypes that you get from the novels and the movies and so on and he fit that mold. But then he broke out of it. And what he started to see was that the land that he loved, that he thought was being ruined by livestock, by too many goats and too many sheep and too many cattle on the land, and that that's what was creating this the the desertification of the land. What he came to understand is that livestock Yes, they could be part of the problem, but they also could be part of the solution. So he started to see the real value of livestock and managed planned rotational grazing. And that's what he began to promote through the Savory Institute. So he and Sam Bingham became friends. Sam co-wrote a book with Alan Savory, Holistic Management Handbook, that's geared towards uh, production management of cattle, which is not a direction that I'm interested in or know anything about. But if there are people out there who are learning about regenerative farming and land management techniques, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We just need to look at what others are doing. And so that's what we're doing in this week's podcast. We're talking to Sam Bingham about Ellen Savory's work. 
And last week we ended just as I was asking Sam to go over a little bit of Savory's background and and to describe him a little bit for you because he is one of those larger-than-life Indiana Jones type of, of people. And so that's where we'll pick up in this week's conversation. So let me go back to your early association with Alan Savory. I, I loved your description of him in in your book, The The Last Ranch. He sounds like one of those individuals, somebody like Steven Spielberg should, yeah. should be making a movie about his Absolutely. life. Really, <laughs> yeah. really interesting person. Could you describe him a little bit for, for people who aren't familiar with, with his work? He is a brilliant observer and he's so dedicated to his to his idea that uh or his his direction i shouldn't say his his idea because he has many ideas but this this whole thing of having uh that you can that nature will bloom if you do what it wants to do you know i got involved with him because my wife and I were working on the Navajo Indian Reservation and we were writing textbooks or working with some young Navajos writing textbooks for that would be relative to Navajo country. And Navajo, the Navajo Reservation is like the size of um, Holland and Luxembourg or Holland and Belgium combined. It's bigger than the state of West Virginia. Wow. It's a lot of land and it's mostly desert. And they had the Navajos were the only tribe that took livestock raising as a cultural item way back when they stole sheep from the Spanish in the 16th century. And they was a real thing for them. And they had been very, they'd become wealthy in, in the sheep business uh, by the turn of the century. And, uh, then they had a stock reduction all over the West in the public lands. They put in grazing regulations and they reduced the herds of the Navajo by putting them in a canyon and machine gunning thousands of sheep and pouring gasoline on them and burning them up because um, they were destroying the land and overgrazing it and all that. And so we were there to write a book for kids about um, Navajo culture and all that. And, here was this thing with the livestock. You know, they, all the older people said, well, that's when we really we became poor and the holy people took the rain away and the drought started and and the government agents were saying, oh, it was this, this Navajos didn't know anything about livestock anyway and they had kept it just for prestige and they were very unproductive herds and they did on and on and on. And on. So how would you uh, – and range – rehabilitation in those days was when diesel cost 20 cents a gallon or something was to drag an anchor train across the desert and rip everything up and then plant crusted wheatgrass from Asia on there. That was what we did. Anyway, uh, nobody could afford that anymore. So we couldn't write a book about livestock that sort of honored the ancestors and did all that and also connected with the modern world. And this was in 1973 or four, or I don't know, in that area. And then somebody told us about Savory, who had, he came to this country in 78, I think, and said, here's a guy who's completely nuts, but you ought to talk to him because you're nuts too. And, and um, 
<laughs> you know, in about half a minute on the telephone, he explained overgrazing and animal impact and effective rainfall and these things and the way that herds functioned in the wild and also big nomadic herds. And the main thing that the government had done to the Navajos was to break up these huge herds and drill wells all over the place and settle people down. So they, the idea was half the animals, they could do twice the sheep if they just had water and knew how to do it. But it, made, it meant that all the rotation, all the motion stopped. People were planted by these water holes, boreholes, and they just grew into contiguous desert within years. You know, it was very quick. So and, and so the rain did go away or everything did dry up. All these things happened. So but he could explain that. And he was passionate about it then and continues to be. And uh, the other thing about I mean, you could pick up from the book that he is totally willing to change his mind. And he changed from being a supporter of well, he never was a supporter of Ian Smith, but a supporter of the, the white supremacy in Rhodesia. And to the point of being in the sort of cloak and dagger, blackface and piano wire business in the in the war, war there, and he changed sides and decided that no, the people he was trying to kill were uh, actually had a point, and he switched sides, and that's why he wound up in America. He got exiled when the revolution won, and he they gave him this land back near. Victoria Falls, and he went back. He spends half the year there now, but he was able to to make a shift like that, and and he did in the manner of the matter of grazing too, because he started out as a wildlife biologist who was outraged at the destruction of the grasslands by cattle, and he was very anti-cattle and anti-livestock until he sort of figured, well, it wasn't the livestock; it was the management that happened. And, and he just changed overnight, said, I'm not doing this thing anymore. I'm going to do the other, which is you don't very often meet people like that. No, you don't. And it's an astounding idea because it does go against the, the party line, as it were, that, that we've grown up with, that it's not overgrazing that destroys land. It's not that you have too many cows and too many horses on the land. And that actually it's the grazers which allow for the grass to grow. It keeps the soil from getting that thick crust of salt on the surface. It's uh, without the grazers, you're going to have desert. I think that's just an astounding idea because it goes against what you hear, what you're told. Yeah. By having the grazers, the herbivores on the land, but not having them there full time. I, th I keep thinking of the wildebeest migrations, you know, the, and we've all seen the images of this vast herds of wildebeest moving over the plains, but they're there and then they're, they're gone for a year and they come back through the migration. And so as they are passing over the land, they are clearly churning it up but they're also leaving behind their manure. Yeah, there's a lot of subtlety in that that is interesting to try and make play out or see it play out in a, a farm or a small 
a, a managed paddock because that manure is also the vector for a lot of parasites and so forth. And by moving away from it constantly, it tremendously reduces the need for wormers and all kinds of things that way of that kind. But there again, you're in a in a bit of a bind. If you can't keep that up, then you you wind up with parasites anyway. But by and large, by we have never we kept keep cows with our horses in the summertime, and and we always have a big infestation of flies right away when they get there. But then as they move on the the cycle the flies stay behind on the manure and other things eat the flies and it usually goes away and we've never had any problem with pink eye or i don't know and we've had completely disease-free stuff for for 10 years and have never used anything it's all it's all organic so moving that it does help i mean it it has other effects besides just moving the animals away. So then I had a question on the wild horses. So we keep hearing that the the Mustangs have to be culled because in part they're overgrazing and they're competing with the cattle. But if you manage the land according to some of Savory's principles, could the mustangs stay on the land and coexist? Well, they shouldn't. Certainly, this is this is a really interesting question because it really touches a lot of sort of cultural and aesthetic things. They are like cattle and elk and other things, uh, wildebeest. They're not self-limiting in their own biology. They depend in in a wild cycle on predation. And, co- and competition so to control numbers. So what Savory says, and it's, or has come down to thinking, and we've seen this in operation on the land that he manages in Zimbabwe, at this, because my wife and I spent some time down there. And they use cattle there in a, I mean, it's, 30,000 acres or something, but it's a confined space. It's not that big. I guess it's about 20,000 acres. They use cattle there to maintain grassland in certain places because they can manage them and with roads that are through there and villages and other things, they need to do that. And they find that they can do that and the cattle impact is enough to maintain this need. They need that to keep the thing vital. And then other things thrive around it. Now, in what numbers they thrive compared to what it was back primordially, that's another question. But you can certainly have cattle and horses there, and the horses should benefit from the cattle and very often the classes of livestock will graze over their the other classes manure so you can have cows go through an an area and horses come after or donkeys or goats or whatever it is and they don't mind the cow manure so much the cows don't like grazing among their own manure but the horses don't mind so much so they can follow that they can live there 
but usually there does have to be something that does take off the excess. I mean, they can't all just die of old age out there. You wind up with a problem, I think. But I'm a, I'm a big lover of wild horses. I don't see any reason to get rid of them. I think if you manage the cattle, you'd have both. You'd have extra, you know. Well, the same way with in other places in the West, the the issue is elk, you know, and elk, elk were be domestic animals. They they will join a cow herd at, at times, and and they'll graze in association with it. And if the if the cows the cows can be a dominant thing, and the elk in harmony with the cows, but multiple species are a good thing, and usually there's a niche for them. This whole idea that when you are Grazing cattle in the way that people learned by going to um, ag school, that there was overgrazing, the grass begins to disappear, you get the, the crust on the soil in these brittle environments. That's a fascinating thing, that water flows up. I just think that's fascinating. And so when it does rain, it, the, the rain doesn't do any good, it can't penetrate the soil, and you end up with a desert. So... If you bring the cattle back, but manage them more along the lines of savory proposals, then you begin to get the grass again. Yeah, and you'll get more horses. <laughs> you will. And yes. that, yeah. more elk and, yeah. Yeah, and everything else that we value, so it's not just horses. And it's an astounding idea that it's the cows that are part of the solution, just as for us, the, the horses are part of the solution in terms of if we can figure out how to restore our pastures, they're part of the solution in sequestering more carbon, which is important. You know, there is the issue always with the cows and, and with the horses to, this, to a similar degree in a slightly different way, that if you are the modern American cow production is just as bad as what all the environmentalists say. They feed them all soybeans, and the soybeans are grown with um, their Roundup Ready and all that stuff. And then they go to feed. They go to a feedlot, which are big stinking places, and dump manure into the water table. And so there's a real difference between sort of organically raised range cattle, which could be the salvation of the world, and feedlots in Nebraska that are pumping out the Ogallala aquifer and polluting the world. And the methane, we can talk about the methane too, but... Horses, in terms of, uh, yes, we feed hay, we feed concentrates of some sort, the grain, so that creates pressure on the land if it's being grown in the big commercial operations. Yeah, I I mean, I don't you can't eliminate that problem without eliminating a great deal of our horse culture in, entirely, but I'm enough of a horse person. <laughs> I want to, I like all those horses around, but they do eat. There's a lot you can do though with say feeding feeding hay on land you want to restore. Then that's a great way to get seeds out there. You don't know exactly what they are, but they don't always have to eat. So let me ask a, a different sort of question. So what Alan Savory and what you were proposing is certainly not, was not the norm. So how did you go about getting people to give it a try? What, so we're, we're faced now with uh, the, the, the pressure of climate change. There are patterns of behavior that we need to shift. 
we're going to slow things down and make a difference. So what are some things that were successful or things that really worked? You mean things that worked on the land or things that worked with convincing other people that this was what I did? I mean things that worked with convincing people. I struggle with that because I've not been very good at it. I thought I would be it would be a life's work and everybody would hear what I had to say and, and jump around and be happy about it. But that's not really what I the way it's turned out it's it is a hard sell and there's so much extra noise out there like how terrible animals are and but demonstrations are a good thing and I think just being excited about things that people don't notice like succession like what is growing there what do they actually eat and let's see and being excited well let's see what your pasture would produce you know the idea of saving the world and sequestering carbon is a is to me very very compelling and i get really excited about seeing soil get more permeable and things covering up and banks healing and arroyos ceasing to be terrible erosion but not everybody has time for that and i don't really know except just personal enthusiasm and i mean i i was astounded to be contacted by you guys. It's interesting when you go to the TED Talk that Alan Savory did, and it's a very powerful talk. Yeah. And then when you look down below at the number of people who have watched it, it's an astounding number. It's in the millions. Yeah. And then you notice the comment that sits right at the top under that, which is, well, this is very controversial and not everybody agrees with what he has to say. And That comment, by the way, is, is, is like 30 years old, which is amazing to me that that thing it doesn't die. It's, it's stayed there. I think you've, you've certainly given us a lot of food for thought. So I think on that, that note that that comment that sits at the bottom of Savory's work is 30 years old and we don't really need to pay any attention to it, that, that what you have seen is his, his work is solid, that, that it certainly is food for thought. Well, that's, you know, I have lived that because I started out with Savory back in the 70s, and when he was a total heretic, considered to be a total heretic, and there wasn't anybody in the United States who would credit him with anything. And one of his bigger inspirations had been this guy, André Voisin, who was a French scientist who who really uh, nailed the relationship between time and recovery and all that. And he, too, was sort of, oh, he's a Frenchman. What could he, he possibly know? And I got this sort of second career out of it because of that, because no, there was no academic person in the United States who would touch savory. And they, there was a guy at the World Bank who really thought it was cool, and he wanted somebody to preach this thing in West Africa. And I had worked with Savory on this book, and I can speak French. So I wound up being sent to Africa to preach this thing in French and because no academic person would do it or could do it. But now... The problem is other. It's that everybody, any any extension service in the whole country is going to 
fill your ear with stuff on rotational grazing and they'll be saying all these things that Savory said. Uh, it's gone to really a mainstream thing in, in those 40 years. That said, and Savory, I think, is a little too sensitive about this. There's a lot of, there's a lot of hokum in it, too, that he's, his intellectual rigor is greater than that of what you mostly get from extension services and people who sort of preach, preach savory that there's, there's a lot of sort of academic points in the thing that continue to rankle, but the, but it has over that time become mainstream in spite of what's said at the top of that thing. And people are talking in, you know, United Nations forums and so forth about soil carbon now. And that, too, is something that's relatively new. It was all fossil fuels. It's the only thing to do for climate change was to stop using fossil fuels and technology to maybe somehow capture CO2. But soil carbon was not a, was not a point anybody made. But now it is. Now a lot of people are talking about soil carbon. So things happening that way. And, and I've seen that over change, you know, 180 degrees in 30 years, 40 years, whatever. And, and certainly given the, the vast acreage that we're talking about in terms of grassland, that maintaining healthy grassland can make a huge, huge difference in the carbon that's sequestered. Absolutely. Absolutely. And horse people take run the gamut from you know bookies at racetracks to little girls in the pony club to cowboys and there's every there's every conceivable variation but i think it is a in general a a constituency that should be open to this and and everybody likes a green pasture and they don't like to see mud mud and if they can figure out a way not to have that and think that they're saving the world by it, that's a, that's a pretty motivating thing. Yes. And, and even if we don't care about saving the world, but of course we do, but even if, you know, for the people who, who haven't really wrapped their minds around climate change or it just seems too big, we do care about healthy horses. And so many of our horses, uh, we can't even let them graze because the quality of the pasture is such that it makes our horses sick. So if we can figure out how to get these healthy, biodiverse pastures that our horses can graze over and do so without becoming laminitic, without becoming footsore and, and sick, then that's a huge plus. You've certainly given, given us a, a lot to think about and a lot uh, to explore. And I think hopefully it will get uh, even more people interested in and looking at some of the things the because we haven't we didn't we mentioned the last ranch but we didn't really mention your other book the holistic range management yeah. that you did. How did you wind up with the last ranch anyway? I mean, it is as I said, it was a literary failure, but there are a certain number of copies floating around. Did did that come from Hannah as well? It was no it was it's on I found it through Amazon. Yeah, I mean, but why did you look for it? How did you ever hear about it? I think I googled you and there there were there it was one of the titles. Oh. <laughs> it's beautifully written. I love I love the metaphors in it. 
and the, your descriptions of the land. And I, you know, I found it, it was a really, I, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it because I'm familiar on a casual basis with the Western landscape, but I, I have no connection with ranching, with especially production, cattle ranching and so on. And so to have that, that detailed look at that way of life and what ranching really entails was, I thought, very interesting. And there were there were there were several passages that I was underlining because they they were so relevant to the training. I mean the the horses for future is looking at sequestering carbon, but the my main interest is in not my main interest, but the what I have focused on for the last I don't know uh, uh, several decades is clicker training. Well, I was going to say in, in, in response to your saying nice things about my book, I was looking at the web on clicker, click training, and you've done remarkable things about that. I think that's incredible. Well, we've both been interested in changing the world in one way or another, and certainly shifting how horses are trained into something that uses more uh, positive reinforcement and less force-based training has been my focus. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot when in your description of Savory's principles and, uh, and some of how he looked at the whole environment that I thought, yes, that's just like training. So it, it was a it was a very enjoyable read because anything that where the, the dots connect, I always find interesting. There's sort of one of the expressions is everything is everything else, that there is always these connections that you start seeing and you know that something is is kind of on the right track when you start to see these connections. Well, it's really interesting to me, though, and you you're right in the thick of it, that how the culture of horse training certainly popular culture, has revolutionized in my lifetime. It's been a remarkable shift in, in perceptions. And they in the livestock handling thing, and there is a chapter mentioned in the last ranch that talks about this guy, Bud Williams, who is dead now. But he has he revolutionized the way mainstream cattlemen treat cattle, you know, change it entirely. Uh, and um, the, his his we still have his original five hour videotape of his lectures and there's it's as revolutionary in its niche as anything Alan Savory said. So for people who aren't familiar, so what what would be the what did he do? What would be the difference? Well, basically said cattle have certain things that they like to do. And if you approach them on that level, they'll do it for you. And you never have to be rough or cruel or shout or scream. And he has them do these amazing things. And he just walks around with his hands in his pockets and looks them in the eye. And um, it's fairly simple principles, but he, he iterates it and he has all these examples that he can relate to human behavior you know he uh, he says if you want to really annoy somebody just walk around right behind him just walk over follow him around a little behind and push him behind from behind and you know sooner or later they'll whirl around and hit you in the mouth 
And he said, now, think of a cow. It's got horns. It's bigger than you are. The thing it, it really hates is to be pushed around from behind. And sure enough, you want to go to go through a gate and you get behind, it's certainly going to turn around and try and go past you. But if you stand by the gate, it may take you a little longer. But before you know it, the cow will go out the gate because he wants to get out, get away. He wants to be uh, relieve himself of the pressure. So he'll go out. So you don't have to push a cow and scream at them and twist their tails and things like that. Just stand by the gate but leave a little more room on one side than the other and they'll go out and they do. And he he has these amazing sequences in there. He was hired to go up to Alaska where some Eskimos have been convinced that they should raise reindeer or caribou. And how are they going to herd them? And there's these pictures of them. They have got, there's, I don't know, a couple of hundred Eskimos and they've got a, a long piece of burlap that's from a roll and they're all strung out and they're trying to herd these reindeer or caribou into a corral by bringing this burlap around them. And the reindeer are getting all feisty and they're Eskimos being tossed in the air and knocked down and wrapped up. <laughs> this is a horrible thing. And they finally get there and he says, and now four hours later I came back to the corral and look at what it's like. And they, these reindeer are running around and around and around as a dead panicked run inside this, inside this corral. And they haven't settled down yet. And I said, well, you know, I went out there with my dog, a couple of days later and to bring in these reindeer and they're in a pasture that's about 3 million acres or no fences around there. And here's what we did. And, and he walks around and all the reindeer walk into the, walk into this thing. They just walk in there and they're all happy. Anyway, he breaks it down so you can go out and do that too, you know, and it, and it works, but it's changed. He made a lot of money with working with feedlots, actually, teaching people to handle cattle, low-stress cattle handling. And it had huge economic effects that normally they'd be herded off a truck and punched with electric prods and hustled through here and there, and then they wouldn't eat for three days because they'd be so panicked. And then they would get sick. So they were all constantly on antibiotics and they discovered that if they actually under unloaded them and did this low stress thing, they didn't get sick and they, and they started gaining weight from the minute they got there. So it was a huge economic thing. Not that you necessarily want to make life easier for feedlot operators, but Bud Williams in his video, he, he's a never finished high school with the Oregon backwoods, cattle guy with a cattle hand who just said, I get tired of being hard on animals. I just figured I had to be a better way. So I just figured this out. And, um, but he has all these little salty things to say about human nature along the way that make this delightful. <laughs> anyway, that that's a revolution along with the, the horse handling thing. Well, there are a lot of revolutions that have occurred over the last 40 years that have changed things dramatically and we need some more revolutions so that we can continue to 
enjoy a healthy planet. I thank you so much for this little window of time, and I don't know how when we cross again. But I'm gonna, how if I go back to your website, to those websites, and I can download things, and they you put a new one up every week, or how how what is your? So horses for future goes up, not quite one every week, but I've been putting them up fairly regularly. Uh-huh. And so if you go to sequestercarbon.com. That's where I post the, each week's podcast. Uh-huh. You should be able to download them from uh, the podcast providers. So through iTunes or whatever your regular uh, podcast provider is. Uh-huh. You, can, you just do a search on Horses for Future and you'll find it. And then Equosity.com. So Equosity is the other podcast. And that one, again, you should be able to download through your normal provider. I've told you where to find my podcasts. You can find Sam Bingham's books, The Last Ranch, and The Holistic Management Handbook via Amazon. This work goes back decades. And that tells us that so much of what we need to know is already out there. We just need to make use of it. So one of the things that I'm going to be making use of is the internet. I'm going to be reinventing my clinics in this age of the coronavirus. If you'd like to learn more about clicker training horses, you can join me in a stay-at-home virtual clicker training clinic. To learn more, go to my website, theclickercenter.com. So thank you for listening. Let's all make a difference in the climate change crisis.